Hello, and welcome to Exclusively Different, where we are ringing the alarm on autism in the African-American community. My name is Kimmy Carruthers, and I am the host of this podcast. This topic is very near and dear to my heart because I have a 13-year-old brother who has Asperger's and is on the autism spectrum. During this episode, we will talk to Ms. Kenya Berry, who is the parent of a 13-year-old autistic teenager, Mrs. Tanya Quinn, who is the legal guardian of an autistic young adult, and Dr. Nashija Berry, who is a clinical psychologist. As we look at issues that arise during the diagnosis process, like provider bias that leads to African-American children being diagnosed later in age and well over three years after their parents raised their first concerns. The stigma that exists within the African-American community leading to adverse responses from family and other community members as it relates to autism and how that stigma carries over into the legal system where African-American special needs children are seen as aggressive and criminals leading to incarceration or death when they have mental health crisis and the lack thereof, but the importance of social support for families, especially mothers, so they can have good mental health as they advocate for their child along their journey. First up, we will hear from Miss Kenya Berry, who is also my mom. I get to share her with my amazing 13-year-old little brother, Joshua, who is on the autism spectrum. My mom has been a true advocate for my brother from day one, and she has recently spread her wings to advocate for the entire autism community by launching her organization, Social Crusaders, which aims to create more social opportunities for children with special abilities to bond and to give their parents social support as well. All right, so welcome mom, and thank you for being willing to join me so I would like to dive in and get to know what your experience has been like as an African-American mother when it comes to autism spectrum disorder. Okay, well, thank you for having me and uh, let's get started. All right. So can you tell me more about the experience of having your child diagnosed with autism? How old was he and about how long ago did this occur? So... Uh, Joshua was first officially diagnosed when he was five years old. Um, he had just started uh, kindergarten and uh, his diagnosis uh, was something that that I always um, knew. Um, but having uh, the language and the words to put to uh, what was happening for me was a was a huge uh burden uh lifted uh, if that makes sense um so joshua's pediatrician uh was also uh, my pediatrician so that lets you know that he'd been practicing for a very very long time and um, so when i would bring up things to him uh, during the visits uh you know behaviors that joshua was exhibiting uh that i thought were were calls for concern, uh, he would always say, oh, you're overthinking it, and uh, he's going to grow out of that. I'm like, okay, but he's not talking, and he is doing the traditional uh, behaviors that are associated with autism. He was lining up his toys. Uh, he was rocking. 
when there was a loud sound in church, uh, he was screaming. Um, and I was just being dismissed uh, by our pediatrician. Um, so Joshua's diagnosis in a way uh, helped me <laughs> and it helped him, um, you know, because then I would know how to when you address your concerns with your pediatrician, he was dismissing you. Um, you were telling him all the different signs that you noticed. You just like say you just didn't know um, like what name to put behind it, but you noticed different signs. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that sometimes those different signs, they may associate with different behavioral cognitive disorders. Um, so was there a, another like behavioral cognitive, cognitive disorder that your pediatrician, um, suggested that Joshua might have? Uh, no, um, to me, um, he was leaning more along, uh, like the cultural norms that are accepted mm -hmm. and the kids are supposed to, uh, behave and the kids are supposed to. When you ask them a question, they're supposed to answer the question. When you tell them to stop doing something, they're supposed to stop doing it. Um, but no kind of clinical uh, like explanation was being applied to anything that I was presenting to him. I, I, just saying, um, you know, that all kids develop at different rates, and which is true. And uh, you know, all kids have milestones that uh, that they meet that they meet at different times. Um, but nothing as far as, hey, here's something else that uh, that may be a that may be a hand. And this was uh, not just one visit or two visits. Um, you know, this was pretty much every visit when I would talk to um, that particular pediatrician who had also been my pediatrician, by the way. So okay. So that's very interesting. I'm going to draw back to um, some of the things you just said. Mm -hmm. So I want to know when you actually <clears throat> did receive um, the official diagnosis, how did you feel after receiving um, the diagnosis of autism? So uh, uh, the official um, diagnosis uh, uh, came uh, once we moved to Texas. Uh, we're from Mississippi, of course, um, but we were living in Allen, Texas, or McKinney at the time. And... Uh, my job had an employer, um, an employer uh, uh, program that allowed us to see um, psychologists and other uh, doctors. So, uh, so I made the appointment for a psychologist, and the psychologist uh, interviewed Joshua. And in talking uh, with Joshua, um, that was when Joshua got his official diagnosis from uh, that that psychologist who was also an educational um, psychologist. Uh, he consulted for education as well. Um, from the time of you like expressing your concerns to your original pediatrician in Mississippi mm -hmm. to the time of um, like you receiving the official diagnosis in Texas, how do you, um, how do you believe um, being African-American like impacted that whole journey of, you know, not being, not being heard, by your original pediatrician to actually receiving um, your diagnosis. Um, so, uh, so because uh, because Doctor Ski had also been my pediatrician, and I'm 
I mean, I'm African-American. And he is not African-American, uh, but a large percentage of his patients are. Mm -hmm. um, so I believe uh, because he primarily treated African-Americans and that he'd been doing it for so long mm -hmm. um, that he felt like uh, he kind of knew mm -hmm. what uh, what black people uh, were expected to uh, know. Like he understood the culture. Mm-hmm. But I was speaking to him as a medical professional. I was looking for his professional, but I felt like he was giving me like these cultural kind of expectations instead of a medical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. uh, so it made me feel like he was just dismissing me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just felt like, uh, it just felt like he wasn't listening to me. Like I was just being dismissed. And so, um, based off your experiences with him feeling like you were dismissed, um, how did your experience with the psychologists and um, other medical professionals uh, that you met in um, Texas like? How did you? How did? How did you feel uh, being African American uh, transpired there? So, um, so once we moved to Texas, uh, Josh was a pediatrician. Uh, was a young lady. Um, who was African-American. Um, she was uh, significantly um, younger. Uh, she hadn't been a doctor for that long. And so I felt like just talking to her, uh, that she knew more about autism. I, mean, I don't know if Dr. Ski uh, maybe didn't know mm -hmm. um, because he had been practicing for so long, um, but she was was well-versed um, you know, in the area of autism. Um, so now not only did I have um, the psychologist uh, who provided the initial uh, diagnosis, but now his pediatrician is also, um, you know, on board uh, because uh, they would try to uh, give Joshua a hearing test and they're, uh, they're playing a sound in his ear and he is screaming. Um, so he was not, so he was not able to do his, uh, his hearing test and he had done these same things in Columbus. <laughs> And they just called it, uh, they called it him being bad. Mm. Um, whereas she was, where she was willing to look beyond uh, the cultural things and see, okay, what's the reason for this behavior? Mm -hmm. uh, Earlier, um, when so, you were talking about the Joshua's diagnosis and how you don't feel like your family was super supportive or very uh like they just they weren't going along with it um pretty much so let's let's elaborate on that so how did you and your family and friends handle the diagnosis um i think that my family did not uh know uh what autism uh, was they had only seen uh, like one side um they didn't really uh, recognize that that if you met like one, one autistic child, you've only met one autistic child. Mm -hmm. That every child is different. That it's truly a and necessarily um, say that they were afraid, um, but it came off uh, more as, uh, you know, like is this is an excuse. Um, you know, are you excusing his bad behavior? Mm -hmm. Are you? Uh, just allowing him uh, not to speak to adults when uh, when he's spoken to, um, these types of things. 
So I was kind of um, like on the defense and But at the same time, um, trying to educate them you know, uh, while I'm learning about um, this condition and, and all that. So, I don't know. So, I was on the defense and offense <laughs> when it came to my, uh, my family and, and um, uh, supporting Joshua. Sounds like you had your hands pretty full <laughs> offense and defense that's pretty tough um so you said like their lack of education you believe like of uh of autism spectrum disorder exactly like what it is and how it is a spectrum mm-hmm. um may have played an effect and you touched on a little bit about fear so i want to ask you so how much of a factor has the fear of stigma and how those in your community would view you or even your child how has it impacted you so as far as stigma, um, going into certain um, situations where um, there were other children um, uh, who were close in age to Joshua, um, I noticed that there would be comparisons um, as far as uh, like the way the kids played with each other and how they interacted. Um, so there was a time um, that I did not uh, necessarily want to take Joshua into those environments um, because I didn't like the way that it felt um, for me. I didn't like the way that it felt uh, for him. Um, uh, it just felt uh, very uncomfortable and like uh, like people were not uh, giving Joshua an opportunity um, to be seen and, to be seen and to be known, they were more so uh, like afraid. And it was uh, because they were imagining uh, this extreme version of autism. A lot of things about how, how, how this diagnosis has made you feel. So I'm interested in seeing what type of support that you have personally received. You talked about you had a line sister um, that had already, that was already like an autism parent. So she had some resources and stuff for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about the different resources that the psychologist like handed out to you, but all those things were like pertaining to helping Joshua. Mm-hmm. So I want to know like personally for you as a caregiver, like what kind of support have you received as a parent so to you help you in your own like the, I would say like the professional, I guess, um support. So I want to talk about like what support, Besides your line sister and, um, yeah, besides your line sister, what's, uh, personal support, like from your other family and friends or just other people within your community, um, what support have you received from them for you as a caregiver and helping you? Um, you know, I was, um, blessed to have a daughter who... Um, who really loves me and her brother Bo. So, um, you know, I don't know if she could tell, um, you know, at times when I would be in the weeds or, um, you know, she just provided um, the main source, I would say, um, of support uh, as far as, um, you know, help with Joshua. Um, like helping him um, to do things, but not just that, um, but giving me a break. Um, from time to time so 
primarily from my daughter, um, not really from other family members per se. Uh, maybe a cousin uh, who was also an educator. Um, she didn't really understand autism, but uh, but because she loved uh, uh, me and Joshua, um, she was willing to step in and help. So us. you talked about how your daughter, me, <laughs> um, uh, like stepped in to like help offer you that support as a caregiver, and how your cousin, um, who's a te- a teacher as well, a teacher. Um, stepped in as well. Seems like they maybe tapped into like some kind of educational resources or they just really were intentional on like um, learning about Joshua's new uh, autism diagnosis and not only being there for him, but being there for you. And so um, since you said those were like mainly the only two, I was just want to know what kind of support would you like to receive to help you in your caregiver role? Like what does that look like for you? Um, um, for me, uh, the gift of time is priceless. Outside of what you're already doing, what would you like to see changed in terms of how autism is handled by healthcare providers, therapy providers, and just overall within the African-American community? Ooh, that's a very... You can break it down. Give me. (laughs) You can break it down. Give me your top. I guess your top three things that you would like to see changed. Um, uh, like as far as uh, the health providers go, um, just listen to the parents. Um, I mean, if I'm expressing a concern, um, I think that there should have been uh, more investigation um to what I was um saying. Instead of just dismissing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as community things go, um, just having people to understand that autism is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. That every autistic child is not going to be the same, uh, not going to respond the same. Um, they're individuals just, <laughs> just as we all are. Mm-hmm. Um, just having people um, to know that and to know that just because uh, just because somebody uh, quote unquote has a disability doesn't mean that they're not doesn't mean that they they don't want to be um, seen doesn't mean that they don't want to be uh, valued um, doesn't mean that they uh, that they're less than um, that's about all I those are excellent 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 points um and i hope that uh we as a community um we do uh work towards making those things making those changes happen um i want to thank you for your responses taking the time out is there anything else you would like to add that i didn't cover um the transition um i guess um, you talked about uh, the organization, uh, the Social Crusaders. Um, Joshua is an eighth grader um, now. And, uh, you know, just thinking about um, his future and um, what his life will look like, um, you know, as an adult. 
Um, we really need to, um, you know, I think as, um, particularly as African-Americans and as parents of African-American males uh, who may have a disability, um, I think that, that that more effort needs to be made to try to um, try to bring us together and um, to educate us, um, you know, you know, as far as like how our sons are going to move through life, um, you know, as adults. Um, so I would like for there to be uh, more conversation, uh, like around that, um, so that Joshua is able uh, to safely navigate his adulthood. Um, you know, as someone who does have a disability. I agree. I totally agree with you. Um, that's why I'm really excited to see. Um, how you blossom with your social crusaders organization. I hope that you can be, you've been advocate for Joshua um, since his diagnosis, even before his diagnosis. I'm just really um, eager to see you be an advocate for the entire community. I believe that you can do it. Um, I'm rooting for you. And I just want to thank you again for joining me and sharing your insights on what it has been like to be an African-American mother raising a son with autism. Next up, we have Mrs. Tanya Quinn. She has been the legal guardian of her 19-year-old autistic niece, Aisha, since she was an infant, and has had to experience weathering through the effects of stigma within the African-American community as it relates to autism throughout her niece's childhood and now adulthood where those misperceptions have carried over into some of Aisha's recent encounters with law enforcement. All right, so welcome, Miss Tanya Quinn, and thank you for being willing to join me. Um, so I would like to dive in and get to know what your experience has been like as uh, the caregiver of an African-American girl with autism spectrum disorder. Um. So, can you tell me more about um, your experience your experience of being the guardian of a child diagnosed with autism? Like, how old was she, and how long ago um, did that occur? Well, as I said earlier, I realized Aisha was autistic early, early on, probably around two or three. Um, it was, I used to take her to daycare in the mornings, and she would babble and it was repetitious songs mm -hmm. but it would be the same thing during the same time it's it it was just something and i mm -hmm. kept triggering i'm like okay she's you know something is not right you know i, I knew something was going on with that mm -hmm. because of the repetition and all the other stuff and she would do her hands mm. like her hands and um things like Lightning freaked her out. One day she seen me without weave. It freaked her out. You know, so I mean, I'm just saying she freaked out. About Different changes. Me. Um, and so were there like any other like possible behavior or cognitive disorders diagnosed? For instance, like um, especially in African African American community, I see based off the different research that um. A lot of times our children are diagnosed with things like ADHD or they just say, oh, it's just 
it's just behavior. They just have That's bad why. behaviors or anything. So, did your niece, uh, anything like that, come up? And if so, like, what was oh, it? Oh, they, they tried. They tried. <laughs> but I didn't let them. Okay, good, good. I I was more concerned about how they would treat her. Okay. I was very, very concerned about her being treated. Because, see, Aisha was, um, she, she had behavior issues. And they tried to put her on a bunch of medication. Mm. And, I, and I stopped them from doing that. I did let her... At one time, um, you know, as we got older, put her on medication because um, she was still still having out, you know, acting up and different little things. But I found out that the the reason she was it was because she was being bullied. Mm. So when I took her and we moved to Florida, all the behavior issues disappeared, disappeared. overnight, and the teachers there were very. Um, very they they were like we we're, we're gonna do everything and they did mm-hmm. and we had no problems when we went to florida uh, no behavior issues immediately took her off the medication nothing so um yeah um it's a combination of stuff because autistic children don't think a lot do get bullied mm-hmm. because they are different they were calling her slow different names all kinds of crazy stuff and um so when we got there, we moved from the environment. Mm-hmm. Things started happening. So we, because she had gotten to the point where she was being bullied a lot, and this was when social media really kicked off. She was like, "I'm gonna cut somebody." She was like, mm-hmm. "Lord, all kinds of stuff." Mm-hmm. So, but once I got around, um, and I knew immediately that we had zero behavior issues in Florida, but a bunch of behavior issues here. Yeah. I attributed a lot of it to the teachers, mm-hmm. not ignoring things, letting things slide. Um, when kids are bullied, ignoring them, they snitching and sneaking, laughing and doing mm-hmm. little stuff. So that was a lot of, of the problems. But when, once we moved, um, she thrived. She did really well. Um, she's doing well now. She There are episodes, gosh. Mm-hmm. There are always... <laughs> you don't know what you might be getting yeah. into. Because... Yeah. She very well could be watching a movie, maybe mm-hmm. being left at a church. One of them lifetime movies mm-hmm. was pouring down, freaking raining in Florida. So she was on social media, Facebook at the time. She posted she left her baby at a church oh. in um, in Fort Walton. Pouring down, raining. So I'm having the police come to the house. Because at this point, they're trying to track down a baby in the point that yeah, rain. Yeah, yeah. Thinking she's left this baby somewhere. So mm-hmm. they, you know, I'm like, oh gosh. So they they came and I explained to them. They told me she had, you know, been on social media that she was autistic. Mm-hmm. And um, that she has not had a baby. It was more than likely something on, on TV mm-hmm. that triggered her to put it on social media. So, of course, they had to check the house and. Make sure there's no evidence of a baby mm-hmm. being born. I was like, you can check the house. Yeah. We don't have a baby. You can check garbage cans. No pampers, no nothing. We're not going to have a baby. They did. And they understood. And it was all over. So there are episodes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, you can. she can do well all of a sudden and if somebody bothers her. Mm-hmm. With they, my sister, she just had an episode. I got to tell King. I don't know if I told her. But I got to tell her. Anyway, there was another episode. <laughs> Um, she worked at Big Lots, mm-hmm. and she somehow a customer said something 
whatever this lady, Karen, you know, said something to her, <laughs> and and so she said something back to, her, and the woman started filming her. She asked her not to film her, so she knocked the phone out of her hand, and police were called. So that was a mess, mm-hmm. you know. So when we went to, they went to court, they realized immediately after talking to her, so they was autistic, and they dismissed everything. So you do have episodes, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. it, you know, and you never know when they'll do good for years. Mm-hmm. You'll never know when she's gonna there's gonna be something to trigger an episode. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to come back around to those episodes. Okay. Um, so, um, you were saying you noticed when you moved from Mississippi to Florida, like mm-hmm. it was like a change. And so you said change in like the behavior and you said you think because of how the teachers weren't, you know, like monitoring things. So I want to like flip that and ask. So when it came to like resources for, um, for your niece, like how easy or difficult, uh, has it been to tap into those and you can compare it to like how easy it was in here in Mississippi versus in Florida here to getting what she needed mm-hmm. that wasn't the issue. Was issue it was more of the environment she was in mm-hmm. the public schools here are horrible um you know and I and I they're they're horrible I know for my experience with ice especially being the special needs it was horrible so so I want to also ask, so um, because here, I know the demographic here is more so, you know, African-American mm-hmm. probably compared to what you had in Florida. So how, so you're saying like, it was like the, you didn't have a hard time getting the resources. It was just like the environment. So how do you feel that like being African-American, how has that played on, um, into, until just overall your journey? Um, with your niece, like how does the like the community? You so say you're talking about the African American community. We have a sometimes we have a hard time, like you know, um, adjusting to things that are different. Just like, for instance, I talked about like uh, therapy. Therapy is just now becoming like a big thing, you know, in African American community. We've always just said no, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. That's you just making up excuses. So mm-hmm. how has like those stereotypes and skepticism, uh, like played into um, this journey, you've already hit on it like a, a, a good bit about yeah. the environment. Well, in my case, um, whatever um, I did have her, mm-hmm. she they, school had her in community counseling. I took her out because it was when one of the counselors, which was happened to be a classmate of mine, mm-hmm. she was like, "Oh, I love her. She's so pretty." Mm-hmm. And I love girl. I had her. She be having me dying. We'd be up there. Me and the teachers be dying, laughing. We had her children cramp. She be dancing and everything. Mm-hmm. Monday morning, she's not going to community council anymore. She's not there for you to for your yeah, entertainment. Yeah, yeah. And that's the foolishness. So that's that was doing. what I experienced with community counseling. So not not going there anymore. Mm-hmm. Not to grow. So, um, just um, us. A lot of cases with what I'm seeing, what I seen in my experience was we just, the environment here is horrible. Mm-hmm. It's just horrible. I meant um, the mentality and the foolishness. It's just horrible. From um, So I feel like, like sometimes the African-American community, we're not necessarily like educated on what yes. autism is because like, 
it's not one if you've seen one child with autism yes. you haven't seen all yeah. so um what ways do you, do you believe that like that that's what caused the problem here is just that people they just don't really understand what autism okay. is it's, yes it's okay. the ignorance of that and it's um just being different yes and and it's the ignorance of a lot of the teachers mm-hmm. because they allow a lot of stuff mm-hmm. to go on because they don't know and they put it all off as being slow just it's, it, it roots down to bullying and different things that causes the root of most of the problems honestly here in the public schools mm-hmm. it's just it's there why you have so many fights why you have so many things and a lot of these children that are doing the fighting are children with disabilities mm-hmm. that are that people don't know and not yeah. able to identify that there's a problem there mm-hmm. they just think the children are bad and this that and that and they're just trying to survive I want to thank you for joining me and sharing your insights on what it has been like to be a African-American caregiver, um, raising a autistic daughter, niece. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so much yeah. for all of your responses. You have brought a lot of different insight, gave mm-hmm. me different perspectives. I really, really appreciate well, it. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm glad to help. And finally, we are going to hear from Dr. Nashija Berry, who is an African-American outpatient clinician at Children's of Alabama Behavioral Health Ireland Center, working with both typically developing children and those with various neurodevelopmental disorders. Dr. Berry started her clinical training in graduate school, working primarily with children with autism and other developmental disabilities. Upon graduating, she completed a clinical internship and fellowship with John Hopkins School of Medicine, during which she trained at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, focusing on the treatment of disruptive behavior disorders and other common problems of early childhood. All right, so welcome, Dr. Barry, and thank you for being willing to join me today. Um, you have always stood out and been a role model to me, you know. But that admiration has grown even more as I watched your career journey and all the amazing work you've done, you know, to help children with special needs. Like that really means a lot. And I really, 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 really admire that. So um, let's dive in. And I want to talk about what your experience has been like as a clinician um, when it comes to caring for African-American children with autism and helping their families along the journey. So we're going to dive in. So I know, so um, what are some of the most noticeable signs, early signs of autism spectrum disorder? Yeah, so is re- there's really, I guess, three different areas you want to think about or look at. You've got language. So if your child has is delayed in language significantly or starting to regress in language, that might be, you know, something to talk to your pediatrician about. Um, the second area, the biggest one is social reciprocity. So is your child answering to their name? About, you know, 12 months or so, a child should be, you know, turning their head to look at you if you call them by their name. If that's not happening, bring it up with your pediatrician, you know, bring that up with your pediatrician. If you, you know, try to point at something to direct your child's attention because you're interested in it and they don't follow your attention, that's a sign. 
you know, does your child bring you things that they're interested in to share that with you? You know, are they looking to engage, you know, have that back and forth socially? If that's not happening, that might be a sign that something, you know, something is amiss. Um, and then the last area is restricted or repetitive types of behavior. So this is where we get into things that a lot of people call stems. So, you know, motor movements that seem to be kind of purposeless. So, you know, rocking back and forth kind of for no reason, hand flapping is a big one, um, things like that. You know, if your kid is showing interest in, you know, really small pieces of something like a light switch and flipping it up and down, or instead of playing with the whole car, they're only interested in looking at the wheel go round and round. So things like that might be an indication, um, but at the same time, all of those things by themselves could mean a million different things. They could also mean absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important to just kind of pay attention to these things and bring it up with your pediatrician if you're concerned. Okay, um, so that's very interesting. So like some of the repetitive behaviors you listed, like maybe like the rocking, the hand flapping and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I won't even ask like about outbursts. Sometimes those things, um, because I was doing, doing research, I saw that sometimes um, doctors or just anyone, when the parent brings it up, they say, it's just your child being bad or, you know, just all these different things. So I want to ask you, because uh, I know sometimes, a lot of times, actually, in the African-American community, mm -hmm. um, sometimes the children are misdiagnosed mm -hmm. with things like ADHD and just other behavior disorders. Uh when it's actually autism, but because of those signs and because of race, unfortunately, sometimes it gets mistaken. So I wanna ask, have you ever personally mistaken or seen someone else mistake some of these signs as being related to another behavior or cognitive disorder? And if so, how do you believe race may have influenced this? Mm, yeah, so absolutely, I have seen people mess it up, you know, um, misconstrue the signs. And interestingly enough, with Black children, it tends to be, like you said, they're misdiagnosed with something else. While, while I see with white children, it's they're more likely to get diagnosed with autism when they, they might not actually have autism. So, and, you know, there's research to support that Black kids are getting diagnosed less often and later. Um, and that's because of a multitude of things. A lot of it has to do with just, you know, bias that we experience, lack of access to resources, lack of knowledge, all of those things together. Um, but you're right, a lot of times people are more likely to label a Black child as just being disruptive um, than having some sort of mental health condition that, you know, could benefit from treatment and services, unfortunately. <laughs> Just, you you brought up a very interesting point. I never knew like that. On the other hand, that some white children are being diagnosed with autism, but they actually don't have mm -hmm. it. I never knew that. So that's something I'm going to have to look more into. That's very interesting. So thank you for highlighting that. And I mean, some of that is a little bit more, you know, anecdotal, but I get referrals a lot of times if it's, you know, from a white child, it's more likely, oh, the teacher thinks that they may have autism. And then mm -hmm. I meet the kid and I'm like, why? <laughs> no no <laughs> um 
and it's it's typically the other way around with um with black kids so that's really sad so we have a lot of work left to do absolutely <laughs> a lot of work um so in that I want to ask so how important um is it you know to form a good patient provider relationship with the family you know especially like I know like um in African African American community we sometimes have a hard time trusting mm-hmm. our um, providers due to historical you know events that have transpired so just how important do you think it is to form that good relationship with the family I would say it's one of the most important things especially um in mental health because people are coming to you and pouring out their deepest darkest secrets a lot of times you're mm-hmm. privy to all of their you know you're in all of their business you know everything about their family all the things that their child can't do that they should be able to do. So in order for people to be able to share that information with you, they need to feel comfortable and safe. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times with people in our community, the problem is that we don't feel safe um, when we walk into a doctor's office. And so if I don't feel safe, then I'm not going to open up to you and share all of the information that you need to make a proper diagnosis or, you know, give treatment. So, you know, making your patients comfortable is one of the most important things. And the first, one of the first things that you need to be focusing on when you get someone, you know, um, under your care, um, for sure. So just continuing in that direction. So what do you believe like makes that easy to do or difficult? Like, yes. So obviously like, you know, cross culturally, that's more of a challenge. Um, when a patient or family of color walks in and the provider is is white, there's already most likely a little bit of a barrier there. So you're going to have to work a little bit harder, you know, to meet people where they're at and make them feel comfortable um, enough to share things with you. Um, I have found that as a Black provider, people get really excited to know that they have a Black provider when they meet me. I would say several times a week, I I get parents that will openly tell me that they're happy that they got, you know, um, that they met me and that I was a person of color because it just, it disarms them. It makes them more comfortable. They're not worried about being judged in a particular way or, you know, is this person going to call CPS on me because of, you know, the way that I'm, you know, portraying a certain thing. So, um, you know, that plays a role in it. So, you know, if you're not a person of color, like I said, you're just gonna have to work harder to try to understand the community, be familiar, be comfortable with people that don't look like you because we can tell when you're not. Um, so also I wanna ask you, in what ways have you offered support for families that after they've received an autism diagnosis? And so, of course, we're going to tie it back to how this, like, fits within African-American community. So I want to ask you, like, how important, how important is it to ensure that um, that support is culturally appropriate? It is very important from start to finish, from the diagnosis, you know, even on the diagnostic side before, you know, we're finding out whether or not a child has autism, being culturally competent is going to be helpful in pulling out the information that you need to pull out from parents and caregivers to to know, but also, you know, just 
um, being familiar culturally with the way people interact socially, especially because the um, social aspect of autism is, is such a big part of the diagnosis and social things change between cultures a lot. So understanding some of those nuances can be really important for um, diagnosing and deciding whether or not a diagnosis of autism is, is important. Um, and then on the treatment side, um, determining the types of things that you're gonna target might be different based off of you know, the culture of the, of the family. So mm -hmm. for instance, with black families, some you know, some issues with safety come up pretty quickly. So I might need to teach a family how to interact with the police, how to let police mm -hmm. know that you know my child is autistic or has an intellectual disability, so they engage a little bit differently. Um, so those are things that a black family might be more worried about um, than another family. Not saying other families don't also worry about those things, but just those little things um, come up that are often a little bit different. So what would you like to see changed in terms of how autism is handled by mm -hmm. provider, healthcare providers, therapy providers, um, just throughout the healthcare system and just overall, you know, like within the African-American community, because we really didn't touch on it, but even within the community itself, you know, there are biases so sometimes parents don't speak up about those different behaviors that you um, mentioned earlier. So what would you like to see change? Yes. I would love, love, love to see the stigma around um, autism or just mental health in general change in our community. And we are getting better. Um, but there is, it's okay if your child has autism. And I think people get so afraid and get so up in arms about if someone brings up if you know you know there's a delay of some sort but i mean we've all got different things that we struggle with you know some kids are have trouble with math or reading if you have a child with autism they're going to struggle with social things or have other things and um another thing is people have this one vision of what autism looks like but we call it autism spectrum disorder for a reason and it if you've seen one person with autism you've seen one person with autism it looks so different from child to child, from person to person. Um, so you could have a genius IQ and still be autistic. You could have an intellectual disability and be autistic. So if someone says that they think your child is autistic, it doesn't necessarily mean that they think your child's not smart or any of those things. Um, it's just a way of kind of explaining the way your child's brain works and the way that they learn. Okay. Um, so I was on it. So I want to thank you for all of your responses. Uh, you have educated me in this short <laughs> amount of time we've been sitting here together and you've just really stressed like there is a shortage. So we do need, you know, more people to, you know, step up and, you know, join the field, do the research so that we can eliminate these uh, barriers, these disparities. Mm -hmm. Um. And so I just want to close up by asking, is there anything else that you would like to add that I might not have covered? Um, nothing specifically. I think just like I said, if you're worried about anything, talk to a professional, ask your pediatrician. Um, they should be willing to answer any <laughs> questions about anything. If they're not, get a new pediatrician mm -hmm. um, and trust your gut. 
too. So if you think there is something wrong, if you're convinced there's something wrong and your pediatrician is being dismissive, get a second opinion, get a third opinion, whatever you need to do to make sure that you know, your baby's good. Yeah, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, I just <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me and sharing your insights on what it has been like to work um, within the autism community and specifically with African-American families. Um, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Do it again. My mom, Kenya Berry, talked about the provider bias she faced during my brother's autism diagnosis process, the stigma that she faced within her own community, and the need for more social support to help her as a caregiver. Ms. Tanya Quinn talked about the negative effects of stigma within the African-American community when it comes to autism and how it leads to bullying during school age years and how it can lead to issues with police during adulthood when Black autistic individuals have mental episodes and are seen as aggressive. Dr. Berry talked about the importance of good patient-provider relationships, the importance of culturally competent resources to address the intersectionality of being both Black and autistic, and the need for more African-American individuals to get involved in the field to help work towards eliminating the racial barriers that exist. To anyone out there that is interested in this area, I want to echo Dr. Berry and say, go for it. You are needed in the field, whether that is to help raise awareness, to educate, or to conduct research on autism in the African-American community. And remember, just because you've seen one autistic individual, it doesn't mean that you've seen them all. Because autism is indeed a spectrum, and each individual is exclusively different. So thank you for listening to my podcast, and listen out for the next episode coming your way soon. Thank you.